0: Welcome to Count Me In with Belle Indiana. Today, we feature a delightful conversation with Ben Orlin, author of Math With Bad Drawings, Illuminating the Ideas That Shape Our Reality, Change is the Only Constant, The Wisdom of Calculus in a Gap World, and as of April 2022, Math Games With Bad Drawings, 75 and a Quarter Simple, Challenging, Go Anywhere Games, and Why They Matter. Ben grew up in Massachusetts, attended Yale as an undergraduate, and, as he puts it, has taught mathematics to every age between the ages of 12 and 18. He finds teaching an appealing career and is particularly interested in obstacles that keep people away from mathematics and how students experience failure in the discipline. In this conversation, you will hear about Ben's teaching experiences in America and England, about how he started his wildly successful blog, Math with Bad Drawings, about his rhythm for writing, and about how he protects his sleep. So please join us as we talk with Ben.
1: Hi, Ben. Hey,
2: how's it going? Hey, it's good to see you both.
3: Nice to see you. Welcome to our podcast.
2: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, exciting to be here.
3: Um, What are we pulling you away from? What would you be doing if you weren't hanging out with us this morning?
2: At the moment, well, working on my next book um, or more realistically texting with my friend in the UK. What's what's the next book? Can we have a look? Uh, the next book? This one's going so slow. It's funny to say, yeah, I'm finding this. I, th- I thought uh, the second one in particular, I thought was hard to write, but this one's proving much harder. It's called how to speak math. And yeah. so it, the idea is to lay out my other three books. What I've done is I've really run away from mathematical symbolism. I've tried to get to the ideas without going through the notation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And this one, I was like, okay, no, got to confront it head on, got to storm the castle walls and try to teach, teach how the notation works. Uh, and it turns out it's, it's much harder than than doing an end run around the notation.
0: <laughs> we like to start our podcast by having you tell us your story. So going all the way back to little Ben. Yeah. And bringing us forward.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, a, yeah, it's sort of a daunting question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> a lot of what I do during the day or during the week is kind of carve out little stories to tell. Um, mm-hmm. So telling like the big autobiographical story is hard. Uh, I, I tend to begin it actually older than little Ben. I tend to begin it at kind of at the end of college. The way I describe it to people sometimes is I don't feel like I'd made any decisions in my life until the age of about 21 or so. Um, like, obviously, you know, I'd like chosen what to order for lunch and like, made you know, like <laughs> small scale decisions. But like, you know, I, I was a diligent student who did what the teachers asked. I was a sort of square, obedient kid who did what my parents wanted me to do. You know, I like I made friends with the kids on the block. And then at school, I made friends with the kids who were in my class. I feel like I was always just sort of locally doing the natural thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only sort of towards the end of college. Okay. Well now you've got to finish in some ways, the default path for me, you know, someone who enjoyed school and thrived in school. Um, I think for a lot of students like that, they wind up going to grad school. Um, I think I correctly understood that wasn't quite the right path for me. I think Mm -hmm. grad school takes, uh, I don't know. Research takes an obsessiveness. I said in all the, in all the PhDs, I know they've got this, like they get their claws on something and they just want to, dig into it forever. Um, and I'm not at all like that. I'm a total dilettante. <laughs> like I get my claws <laughs> into something. I'm like, oh, this will be a fun half hour. And then it's okay. On to the next thing. Um, <laughs> like I don't even binge TV. I, like, you know, if I watch an episode, I'm like, Oh, that was satisfying. And on to the next thing. <laughs> um, so that, like, that's not, that's not the personality for grad school. Um, but there were sort of a few different things that made teaching an appealing career. Mm-hmm. Um, One of them being that, you know, I studied math in college, but I also studied psychology in some ways. I was a psych major before I was a math major.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, And it's hard to think of a more kind of richly psychological profession than teaching. You know, what's the work of a teacher? It's to help people understand. It's to help people build new structures of knowledge and meaning and and motivation in their minds. Right. Uh, The
3: brain of teenagers, too.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is you know, a daunting place to try to enter into, <laughs> um, but, but, but a fun challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I guess I was ready for a different kind of challenge than the strictly academic challenge, I suppose. Teaching is also, and part of the appeal is that it is, it's a very intellectual work, right? You're trying to impart ideas. Um, it's also social though. There's not, you know, whereas a research career involves a certain amount of, all right, this week I'm spending this whole week with PDFs. You know, those, those are my companions this week. Mm-hmm. Um, like teaching doesn't really ever give you that. You're always, I mean, even when the students aren't there, you're working with your colleagues to mm-hmm. think about curriculum or think about, you know, how you want to structure the department. So it's, it's a very social job. Um, and I think that, yeah, that was part of what drew me to teaching was psychological, intellectual, and social all in a, in a pleasing combination. mm
0: mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. So, where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah, oh right yeah I zoom, we got to zoom back before age twenty one yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I grew up in uh around Boston, suburbs of Boston, so Winchester, Massachusetts is like a you know a wealthy suburb of boston mm-hmm. um yeah, I would say it was it was a it was a childhood with lots of privileges and advantages, you know, my father is a professor um mm-hmm. I went to the very good public schools in, in my town, K through eight, and then went to a private school for high school. Um, and that, that was just a fabulous education, especially at the uh, nine through 12 at that high school, Commonwealth School in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, re- really. For me, it was a really magical place, just excellent teachers and wonderful classmates. And, and um, yeah, a place I really felt like I could thrive. Mm-hmm.
0: And how did you choose where you went to university?
2: Yeah, again, I think I didn't. (laughs) It was the default choice. I I went to Yale for undergrad. um, And when I was applying to schools, I sort of did an even split of liberal arts colleges and private research universities. Um, And kind of the decision came down in the end to Pomona, which was my favorite of the liberal arts colleges and Yale, which was my favorite of the research universities. And like, if I'm honest At age 17, when I was making this decision, like, I sort of liked Pomona. I had like a warmer, fuzzier feeling about Pomona, but I also really liked Yale and it was only, you know, two hour train ride from home. Um, And like, I figured like, I'm not going to regret having a degree that says Yale on it. I don't know if it was a pragmatic decision or a bit of a cowardly decision or, or, or just a decision that showed my, my desire not to be too far from home. You know, it was, it was Mm -hmm. nice to be able to, to get back home easily. And yeah, my older sister would come visit me when I was at college. So, so being close to home did have its advantages. Um, But I think in in, in some sense, like uh, it's also, you know, if you give 100 students the choice between Yale and Pomona, like, you know, a majority are going to pick Yale Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, just because people are drawn to prestige. Um, And I don't think my reasons were much better than that, necessarily.
3: Did you have anyone growing up that really um, uh, inspired you in mathematics or helped you choose mathematics?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. The, so my father is a, is a mathematician. He's a sort of an applied mathematician. Um, technically he's at a business school. He's at Sloan school at MIT. Um, and he does, uh, work that he's in operations research. Although I think today when, you know, when he goes around and gives talks, mostly it's kind of theoretical computer scientists who are interested in what he does. It's algorithms and, and network flows. Um, so I definitely had a lot of math in the household from a young age, uh, you know, he like, I, I didn't do homework with him or anything like that. It was more just kind of having somebody around who had, who knew how mathematicians think about math and how they see the subject. So I think I had yeah, easy access to those kinds of soft skills that for, for a lot of students are a little harder to come by, um, that like casual expert view, um, was something I had easy access to. Um, and, and my father was a wonderful dad and also somewhat extraordinarily just applied zero pressure at any level of my education towards any particular outcome or level of achievement. Um, he was, he was just totally hands off and like, you know, um, just let me do my thing. I used to unkindly when I was, uh, you know, like a 16 year old, 17 year old working extremely hard in my classes in school, clearly, you know, on a track to go to some place like Yale for undergrad, um, I would sort of tease him, but be like, "Yeah, I'm not going to go to college. Just going to just going <laughs> to skip it." Um, which I just I just knew that would, would kind of mess with him a little bit. Sixteen year olds <laughs> are not always the nicest people, so um, and he he just it kind of rolled off his back. He go I'd sort of sigh, <laughs> but I, I think he knew I was joking, but didn't know quite how to how to get me to stop.
3: Did he explain mathematics well? Or are you going to be using some yeah.
2: of his in uh, in your next book? <laughs> Yes, I know. If you're talking with him about math, he's got, um, yeah, yeah, I think he's, he's a good, a good expositor of math. Uh, and he loves, and I share his love for, I think, um, you know, kind of cognitive psychology, Kahneman and Tversky thinking fast and slow sorts of things. The, um, trying to understand what people's intuitions about probability and uncertainty are. Uh, I feel like over the years we've had lots and lots of conversations about those sorts of things.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, so definitely, yeah, I, I've got a real interest in that in my writing and, and, and my teaching to some degree have drifted towards those kinds of questions. Uh, and so partly that's my own interest in psychology. But I think I think some of that I get from him that, yeah, that curiosity about, yeah, how does the typical person think about uncertainty and probabilistic questions?
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm curious. So you finished at Yale. You knew you didn't want to go to grad school. So take us from there.
2: Yeah. So I, let's see, I decided to move to San Francisco. Um, and I'd never been to San Francisco. So apparently that was just, yeah. You know, I don't know. It seemed like a, a cool city. Um, yeah. I lived with a friend doing a kind of funny reverse commute. I found, I found a job, um, at a charter school in Oakland, a charter high school that was <laughs> a place I still have a lot of strong mixed feelings about. Um, they were, I think to, to my benefit, um, and not necessarily the students at first, they were willing to take a risk on someone who had, you know, I, I didn't have a teaching credential, so they had to sort of help me get it as I went along. Um, certainly didn't have much teaching experience, right? It wasn't like I'd done some kind of, uh, uh, what's the word, like, you know, I hadn't been embedded in a classroom and, and had a mentor teaching me how to, how to teach. Um, so I really walked in, I mean, you know, I think of people doing Teach for America as walking in pretty green on day one. I mean, they've at least been through a six-week institute. I had been through like a Saturday of training. Um, and then I was walking into the classroom really woefully underprepared for what it means to be in front of students and to be helping to guide their learning. Uh, yeah. So, so it was this, uh, this school in Oakland. Um, and I think that first year, I think by any standard, I taught very poorly. Um, I, like, you know, I, and I think by, by my fourth year there, I spent four years there. Um, and by my fourth year there, I think I was, I'm, I'm proud of the work I was doing by then. Uh, but there were, there was a learning curve. I had to, you know, figure out what was going on in the classroom um, and how it worked and what, what it meant to, yeah, I don't know, to try to bring the subject to life for students and, and all the different pieces that go into that. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that was, that was a, yeah, a, I learned a lot there, um, a different kind of learning than I'd done in undergrad, but I definitely learned a lot at that job.
3: Mm-hmm. where along the way did you uh start thinking about the ideas you ended up putting in your blog math with bad drawings um like w- that started in your brain probably before it started as a blog and what were you thinking about what what were you trying to get out of that
2: yeah it's a good question i started the blog during my ex during my fourth year of teaching mm-hmm. And I always loved writing and liked the idea that teaching, because you have the summers off in in some sense, there's things to do over the summer, but but you do have time off. Um, Mm -hmm. I like the idea that that could be kind of compatible with writing and having writing projects on the side that I could, you know, keep at a low boil during the year and then really work hard on during the summer. Um, And there's only like during my third year as a teacher, I think that a friend pointed out it was a little silly to be having these writing projects. So I was trying to do comedy writing and, and I don't know, different sorts of things that had nothing to do with the work I was doing during the year, nothing to do with my teaching. And a friend pointed out, you know, you could, you could write about the stuff you do for a living. <laughs> you could write about math and, and what it means to people and explain the ideas and talk about what are the obstacles people face and trying to learn it. Um, Cause that's what I would think about and talk about all the time. That was, that was very central to, mm-hmm. to what I was interested in. Um, and for some reason I wasn't writing about that. I was trying to, I don't know, write like Jorge Luis Borges short stories, um, which I was definitely ill-equipped to, to write. Um, and so, yeah, at that, at that point, I started playing around with ideas. Yeah. What like what did I want to share from the classroom, from what I'd learned in the classroom? Uh, and I think the thing that most interested me and it was probably part of what drawn me into teaching math, too, and certainly had been a central concern while I'd been teaching math was, I guess, what you could broadly call math anxiety, but all the obstacles that keep people from thriving in math, Mm -hmm. um, all the things that make people push the subject away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, especially early on the blog, a lot of my writing was about that, was about the classroom experience of math. Um, And I would talk sometimes about mathematical content, you know, I'd explain this idea or that idea, but mostly in service of a larger point, about math education. Uh, that, was, that was what was most interesting to me then, yeah, especially how do students experience failure? What does failure mean to students? Um, and how does it change their self-image? Uh, I think that, that's something lots of other writers and researchers have converged on, but that, um, yeah, that our experiences in any class, but maybe especially in math, shape our sense of who we are and what are our abilities and where is our ceiling in some sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and trying to figure out those mechanisms and and those little narratives that slip into our heads and, and maybe build healthier narratives. Uh, that was what excited me. Mm-hmm.
0: Did you realize you were bringing together your interests in love for math and psychology?
2: So I think that that I was conscious of. There's there's lots that I <coughs> lucked into or blundered into or didn't think about until later. Um, in particular, the, uh, the, the blog is Math with Bad Drawings. And my first book was called Math with Bad Drawings. The, the With Bad Drawings remains kind of my calling card. Um, and I think that's been a very effective bit of branding, um, which is not remotely how I intended it. Literally, I was like, well, this needs pictures. You can't explain math without pictures. But I can't draw. I'm bad at drawing. So I'm just going to disclaim it up front. Put that in the title, and then no one can complain about it. You know, like you—you you saw the URL you're at is mathwithbaddrawings dot com. You can't complain that the drawings are bad. Um, so just, just kind of <laughs> forestall that. But it, it, it turned out, you know, it, 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 um, people find it charming. It sort of fits in the XKCD world of of stick figure art, uh, and it also, um, the leading with something I'm bad at changes the conversation a little bit around mathematics, um, especially people who feel like math is not their thing. Uh, it's like, okay, well, maybe math isn't your thing, but drawing is clearly not my thing <laughs> here. Here I am giving it a shot. <laughs> uh, so I think, so anyway, so that, 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 was something that I came into accidentally, but you were asking about, right. The kind of synthesis of, of, um, psychology and math and, and the interests coming together. And yeah, that was something actually, I was very, very deliberate about mm-hmm. that. Like I wanted, I knew a few things that interested and excited me and yeah, more so than thinking about a specific career path, which i never been particularly good at like figure, okay, what's step A, step B, step C just kind of figure out like, what are some pieces that excite me and I find interesting elements I want to have in my professional life uh, and finding a place where those elements could start to come together. This is how I cook too. Like I can't follow a recipe. Like I just like physically can't do it. Like you put a recipe in front of me and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, (laughs) I just like swerve away from it, but I'll like get the, get the ingredients that I think are going to work together and start, start tasting and, and seeing how it fits together.
0: So one of the questions when you, um, when you're listening to uh, an author, an interview with an author, one of the most, at least from my view, and when the interviewer is doing the uh, interview with the author, they'll always say, well, you know, I'm going to ask this question because everyone always wants to know, how do you apply the trade? Like, do you have a, you know, are you Kate DiCamillo when you're writing because of Winn Dixie, you get up and write from six to eight before you go to your job at the, you know, what's your style?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's evolved a little bit. Um, what are the common threads? I've always been a tinkerer. So it's always the case that, um, I think a lot of writers are like this first draft is hard, really tough to get a first draft down. Um, I sort of need to often trick myself into writing a first draft. Like occasionally I like, I accidentally have an extra shot of espresso and i've got lots of energy and a first draft will just pour out but usually that's not what happens like i can't wait for that inspiration now that i'm doing it for a living um so more often it's a matter of reading around widely gathering some notes and quotes and thoughts and little snippets that i think make the right you know have and put the pieces in place uh then sort of assemble that doing a lot of copying and pasting in a word document kind of rearrange those pieces and into an outline and then at that point of sort of tricked myself enough where at the point you start to write transitions and you need one or two little moments of inspiration. But at that point I can put together a, uh, uh, first draft. And then the part that I really enjoy is the, like the tweaking and the editing. And once, once there's a good, but not perfect draft down on paper, um, then just going through and punching it up and realizing oh, I can cut those four words and I can combine that. And, oh, this paragraph makes more sense down here. And, oh, you know, what would a better verb be there? There's something a little brighter, a little more animated that, that part is really fun. Um, and so, and, and yeah, so I enjoy, and enjoy the early part. We're coming up with the conceptions of, you know, what is the nature of this book? What is the concept? What's the premise? What's my angle?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, in terms of like what a day looks like, it's ch- definitely changed since I've had my daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so used to be w- during the time that I've been writing full time, I would, you know, wake up, go to a coffee shop, work for the morning at a coffee shop, um, you know, occasional distracted dips into social media, but but pretty diligent. Um, and then uh, in the afternoon, maybe editing or maybe reading. Uh, and that was sort of the structure of a day. Mm-hmm. Now, instead, the first like two three hours of my day are taking care of my daughter, so so it's a different it's a different thing. I'm actually finding you know, we're the part of what's making the current book I'm working on a little tough is I'm finding the afternoons are when I'm better. I, I just have better ideas and the words are coming out better in the afternoons. But I'm not used to that rhythm for a day uh, mm-hmm. so it's, it's forcing some some adaptation in my schedule
1: mm-hmm.
0: i wanted to go back to something you said i love i loved your point about um the first draft is hard and you really like the editing the moving around um, one of the things i love about editing is it's a chance for a do-over and we have so few of those in life like you know so I view editing as just this really um rich opportunity to do something over.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's totally right. I mean to me that's that's kind of the draw of writing is that you don't have to ever show anyone the first thing you thought of. <laughs> it, you, like you get to you get to sculpt and reposition and pick an angle and and present the polished yeah, self-chosen version that you'd like to present. Um which there's very little else that's like that. Certainly, teaching is not like that. Teaching is a lot of improvisation, and things happen in the moment, and you can try to go back and, and correct or or adjust, mm-hmm. but um, but it's not sculpted in that way.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about how students are receiving your blog and your books. Mm-hmm. Do you hear from them about um, you know the fact that you own up to the you can't draw, um, and are are they seeing themselves in what you write, and are they appreciating um, not coming from a high point and being the professor and you're willing to say, hey, I can't do this well, but, you know, I, I'm willing to take a try.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Overwhelmingly, the feedback in the drawings is, oh, they're not that bad. Um <laughs> which, which is very sweet of people. It shows it shows there is, you know, people we're all we're all a mix of good and bad, but there there's an inherent mercy in people, I think. If you, you know, like they, they see someone struggling and they say, no, 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 you're you're doing fine. Um so I, I think some people I think mean it genuine, they're like, oh, no, these really aren't very bad. I think they may be mistaking thinking that I have lots of different artistic styles in my repertoire and I've chosen something kind of minimalist with these stick figures and these big silly eyes as though that's, you know, as I couldn't be doing other things you know, for Randall Monroe who does XKCD or Ali Brochu who does hyperbole and a half. Those are sort of, you know, I, my work falls in the shadow of theirs um and that's true for them they're both very good artists this is not true for me like, this is really like I, in the back of one of my books is a chapter about a dog so in the back i put a little collage of like my first seven attempts to draw the dog and it's like it's a it's a zoo of horrors they're really grotesque looking they're really upsetting broken looking stick figure dogs um so but yeah no people are very merciful on the drawings um yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I think of myself as writing more for adults. The, the audience I tend to have in mind is a, like your sort of curious nonfiction reader, someone who might pick up a pop science book, a Neil deGrasse Tyson book or something like that, um, for whom math sort of exists at the edges of their interests or understanding of maybe something where they, there were point in, points in school where they felt, you know, quote unquote, good at math. And then they hit some class where they felt bad at math. And probably didn't really revisit the subject after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, especially when I was writing my first book, I was really thinking of it as kind of laying out a picnic table and inviting people to come back and have a reconciliation with math, have some nice moments with the subject. Um, I tried to very carefully choose uh, stories that wouldn't yeah, that would be intimidating, would be accessible and, and fun. So, you know, there's a chapter about triangles and architecture and a chapter about um, why giants can't exist because of sort of scaling properties. Um, chapter about the Death Star and the geometry of spheres. So, so I tried to make it sort of fun and accessible. It turns out, though, of course, when you write silly, accessible prose about mathematics with examples from Star Wars, <laughs> you're actually appealing to an audience of middle schoolers. You know, <laughs> like it's so. So, I think a lot of my, I, I have no idea what percentage of my readers, but I think a lot of my most avid and enthusiastic readers are, um, yeah, are students you know, early teenage years who are excited about math and find my books, give them something different than school gives them,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, because they're very non-technical. Uh, and, and a lot of the math is, you know, for expert math familiar mathematics. The jokes are new. Some of the stories and anecdotes are new. Um, but for, for a young reader, it's all new. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I think, I think they respond to the silliness, the fact that, you know, pretty much every paragraph, there's going to be some kind of joke know, it might be a good joke, it might be a bad joke, but there's you know there's going to be something. I'm clearly you can see me working to entertain you uh, as you read the book, and I think I think I think they appreciate that. It was actually there was a conversation I overheard two students having once in my my second or third year teaching, um, and one of them, the ninth grader, said to the other girl, "Oh, you have Mr. Orlin, you're so lucky." And she was like, "Yeah, I know." He was like, "He makes jokes in class," and she was like, "Yeah, it's great." And he was like, "I mean, they're not, you know, they're I don't get they're not funny." It's just no, yeah, no, no. You don't really know it's a joke until he starts laughing at it. And then he, I was like, yes, "I'm, I'm right here." And oh, we know, we know, Mister. We're, we're, we're saying positive things about you. Um, so there's something about that, especially when it comes to math and humor. You know, people appreciate the effort, even if it's not absolutely top shelf uh, joke writing.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: We like to uh, always ask people we're talking to about uh, someone who helped them along their way. So um, you spoke a lot about your father and your father helping you in your education and and in your um, outlook on life. But is there anyone that you can say was a, a helper along the way? Who, someone who encouraged you in your youth, someone who encouraged you in, in your adulthood, uh, someone who's really been there?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I feel it almost feels... Unfair to single out one person. I feel I've, I've enjoyed a very supportive world around me. Um, my teachers were always really supportive growing up. I think especially writing teachers. I, mm-hmm. You know, at this point, I'm more writer than mathematician in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, and and I think probably part of that is well, part of it is I always loved writing, um, but part of it that is having teachers who really encouraged me along the way from elementary school through into into high school and college. It's funny. I mean, I. I um, I, I didn't grow up in a particularly precarious situation. I, you know, like I was, I, I fit the demographics of the kind of person who is, has a path to thriving readily in our society. Um, not just being white and a cis man and all of that, but also be like born with a level of financial comfort and, and with a father who, you know, into a highly educated family. It would be harder to find people who discouraged me in some ways. I think I, yeah, I, I had a supportive world. I've always had, friends I trusted and, and family I could rely on. Um, you know, my marriage has been a, a great source of support for me. I don't know if that's a, a cop-out answer, but support has has not been lacking in my life. I've had, I've that's had pretty wonderful. ample support.
3: Yeah. That's wonderful. Speaking of, uh, your marriage, if you don't mind, you're married to a mathematician, aren't you?
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Taryn is a, uh, is a harmonic analyst, mm-hmm. um, and, and teaches at a liberal arts college at McAllister college. Um, and so we've, we've been together since college. So we've, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been fun. We've had very complimentary careers, mm-hmm. uh, has been nice, you know, when she was much more focused on research and, and wasn't doing a lot of teaching yet, uh, we could still have interesting conversations about, about teaching. Cause that's what I was doing. And now as her career has turned more into teaching heavy and mine has become more about my solitary writing time, mm-hmm. um, the roles kind of reverse i get to tell her about what i'm thinking about for my writing and she gets to tell me what's going on in the classroom and i get to <laughs> maintain some contact that way um, is she funny you know i i think so i think she's got a good sense of humor <laughs> she doesn't she doesn't make jokes she's not she's not a terribly uh jokey person <laughs> i think we've uh, yeah i think there, there there's ways in which we have a lot in common and then ways in which we we do more of a uh yin yang you know the <laughs> marriage of of contrasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, would say I'm, I'm more of the definitely more the silly outgoing one. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's more of the quiet, uh, patient one.
3: Do her stories about teaching give you ideas for cartoons?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 No, it's always interesting hearing, um, yeah. Having access to different classrooms and okay. different, mm-hmm. different minds and, and, and different content too. Right. She teaches, um, there's a bit of overlap in what we've taught, you know, I've taught, calculus courses. Um, and so the kind of upper end of high school math and the introductory college classes overlap, um, but she also teaches a lot of analysis and, you know, sort of classes for juniors and seniors, undergrads. Um, and that's not material that I've, I've ever taught. And so what math education looks like at that level is a little different than it looks like at the levels I have taught, uh, sixth grade through 12th grade. Mm -hmm. Um, and so getting a little bit more of a window into other, other parts of math education is always fun. Mm -hmm.
0: So one of the questions we like to ask our guests is for you to describe a challenge and how you faced it.
2: Yeah, sure. Okay, okay. Well, here's uh, I can tell a, a sort of abject failure. <laughs> this is like one of one of the first essays I wrote actually was was revisiting this, um, and it's funny because at the time it felt like a like just a total abject failure, and then writing about it was sort of my first big break as a writer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It was like a blog post that went viral and got reposted at Slate and really kind of launched my my writing career. So it turned out that I managed to cash the failure into something useful. Um, but this was my last year of college. And I decided late in the game to do a math major. And sort of the the capstone course of the major was you pick a, um, a seminar where the students do all the teaching, right? So the students lecture to each other. Uh, and there was one in differential topology with a wonderful professor. And so I figured, OK, I'll go, go for that. And I just didn't I didn't give it the time I needed to give it. I didn't. I didn't give it the yeah, the energy, the attention. Yeah, I was a second semester senior. I was I was off doing other things. I always had excuses for why I didn't didn't need to really read the stuff as closely as I should have been. Um and so for a few weeks, it was like a totally familiar experience. I think to anyone who struggled in a math class for a few weeks, I was kind of hanging on. I knew there were pieces slipping by me. Um, I knew these definitions were way too long. No, no definition should be half a page long. It feels like <laughs> that's a, that's a theorem at that point. Like, give, <laughs> give me a simple definition, but that's not what it, for whatever reason, that's not how, how this differential topology book was structured. I guess you want to pack a lot into these definitions. Um, and it was just uh, yeah, it was just slipping away from me. And what I saw myself doing, I guess less so at the time, but more in hindsight, was avoiding, right? It was getting avoidant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was senior of college. There were so many things I could be doing at any given moment. You know, mm-hmm. there were friends to see for the last time before we graduated and there were concerts to go to and there were parties and there, you know, there was, there was so much stuff happening. There was, I was working on a, writing a musical at the time. So it was a musical to work on. Um, there was so much stuff that it never rarely did it rise to the top of my list. I would do like a little bit of work for the course every week. Um, and my first turn came to give a lecture and I, yeah, I figured it out well enough to kind of present what was in the book, but it was a pretty thin understanding. And the professor asked at one point, a kind of probing question. Um, and I just had to be like, Oh yeah, that's a Completely natural question. I forgot what he was asking for an example of something or, or how two pieces fit together. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a, if I'd been thinking harder, I should have asked myself that question. And, and I had not. <laughs> I, just, I, had the, I do not know the answer to that. did not have an answer for him. Um, and then later in the semester, I had to give a second lecture. My turn came back around. Um, and at that point, I was just totally lost. I, I, I couldn't even tell you. I mean, right now, I, I could not tell you what the topic was for that second lecture. I don't know. I don't remember. I didn't have a firm enough understanding to. To like even you know have anything to hang it on, um, it, was, it was really just symbols to me, mm-hmm. and so which wasn't an experience I'd had very often in math before, and and I see in students, you know most people hit that experience at some point. There's some point where you get lost and confused and you're starting to fail, and in some ways like I tell this to students. I think having that happen as early as possible mm-hmm. is advantageous. Mm-hmm. I think the people for whom that doesn't happen until grad school often don't finish grad school because what a shock to be 24 years old and for the first time in your life struggling in math Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, for the first time like things aren't fitting together. Um, For me, it happened a little earlier. I wasn't planning on grad school. I was 21, and for the first maybe second time in my life, like really lost in math. Um,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And I think at that point, I see this in students too. Like you've built up a self image as you know, being good at math. And there are there are more, there's sturdier ways to construct that self-image. You can say, like, what makes me good at math is my tenacity, is my asking the right questions, is my you being restless until I have an understanding that satisfies me. Um, those I think are sort of healthy self-images that'll carry you through. But if your self-image is, oh yeah, I'm good at math because I always get it right away, Mm -hmm. that's very brittle. That's very fragile because at some point you don't and then hmm. it's painful to even look at it. Um, and th- this is what happened to me. And I, th- I think a lot of the language I have for it is language I developed later seeing students behave this way. At the mm-hmm. time, I would have just said, nah, I'm busy. I got a lot going on. It's, it's fine. It's whatever. I've taken other classes. I've mm-hmm. got other things to do. And ultimately, when it came time for that second lecture, I was putting it off, planning it and putting off planning it. And it got down to like a, maybe two or three days before. And I was just nowhere. And I knew at this point it was too late to get anywhere. Um, sometimes that's what procrastination is about. I think is mm-hmm. if you start early and work hard on it, then any shortcomings feel like your own shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you procrastinate until the last second, I definitely see students do this with writing, but it's like, Oh, it's not that I came short on that. It's like, Oh, I'm a procrastinator. I wait until the last second. And now, you know, any shortcomings in the final result are, are a result of, you know, just the terrible time constraints I was under because of my silly planning. Um, somehow it's easy to accept yourself as a procrastinator than as someone who who struggles with the material or or is still learning and growing. Um, so in the end, I basically just threw myself at the mercy of the professor. I was like, I don't, I don't know this, I don't understand this. And I I sort of just begs to be spoon-fed mm-hmm. the material so I could mm-hmm. then deliver the lecture that was required of me in the course. Mm-hmm. Um and he 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 behaved with total grace and elegance. He did exactly what I would do as a teacher, which was probe a little bit try to get the student to do some of the intellectual work mm-hmm. um and i think as the you know we talked for maybe 45 minutes or an hour and as as it went on i think he he acquiesced to like okay the student isn't there um, i just wasn't i didn't have it uh i didn't have the pieces in place to even fully grasp yeah that content um the the stuff i was supposed to be expert in supposed to be teaching to, to my classmates um and so i t- i took that that you know the material he spoon fed me and went and gave that lesson and, and, you know, graduated and just kind of buried that memory until a few years later when I was teaching and thinking a lot about, about how students experience mathematical failure. Um, and at that point it had kind of closed off that memory enough that it wasn't really very central to my self image. It was sort of like, no, no, I always thrived in math in school. I succeeded all the way through my math education. Um, and it kind of bracketed off that, oh yeah, no, that time I really, really didn't that time. I really struggled. And so it was only, yeah, it was only a few years later that I was able to circle back around and revisit that, and 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 make sense of it and see see myself the way I would see my students, which is that's a totally classic trajectory for someone who succeeds in math all the way through and runs into their first experience of struggle, Mm -hmm. and just has too brittle a self-image as a mathematician to persist through the painful work of of not understanding, of being stuck.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And yeah. did you talk to your students about that? <sighs> I'm trying to
2: think of, I'm not sure how, how, well I painted that picture for my students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a good question. I, I don't, I don't know. I, right. This is now, I don't know, almost 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if I, if I talked about that experience in those terms for my students, I think it's something a lot of writers find is that it's weirdly easier to be very confessional in writing something for tens or hundreds of thousands of strangers than it, is, than it is to like say something honest and, and you know, and confessional to 25 people, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: well, there was just a post on math values written by a student. And one of his suggestions for faculty was to talk about your failure, that this would help. Yeah. He had a lot of other suggestions, but that was one, but mm-hmm. I think you're right. It's, it is easier. You never, I never thought about that To you just said it. It's easier to be confessional on, a, on paper for strangers mm-hmm. than it is for yeah. people you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. And partly is what you brought up before about the, the ability to polish and sculpt a piece of writing. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Right. That's part of why people like to address thoughts that are sensitive and, and confessional and, and emotionally delicate in writing. You can, you can tweak until you've said it the right way. Uh, whereas doing that in person, the emotions get more intense and it's harder to, it's harder to share exactly what you're trying to share. Mm -hmm. Easier to veer off onto some other path.
3: Ben, could you tell us about an aspect of your life where you feel like you're still a student?
2: Mm. Hmm. I mean, drawing for one. (laughs) (laughs) yeah I, I i could still do better in some ways at steering into the places where i'm a student so actually, literally i've been a student the last couple of years I've, I've been doing a master's degree um
1: mm-hmm.
2: i i finished my bachelor's and then went off into teaching and writing and was sort of like eh, yeah, who, who needs a who needs a higher degree um and then i became excited about teaching community college i've, I've just had good experiences when i've yeah you know, I've, I've visited community colleges as a speaker and, and given kind of talks around book promotion and and you know, done trainings and things at, at for uh, community college faculty, and I always really enjoyed the environment. Uh, and I, I just love community colleges as institutions. I think they're a lovely part of our of our American educational system, which mm-hmm. is not something I often say about the American educational system. But <laughs> there's a lovely part of it, um, but community colleges, I think, really do are something that we as a society should be proud of and should, mm-hmm. should honor. Um, also I just liked the TV show community. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> part, partly it's about that. Uh, so anyway, so once you can be a college, but it actually you do, you, it depends on the state maybe, but I live in Minnesota. I do need a master's degree to be able to teach uh, community college. So anyway, so, so, I've actually gone back and gotten a master's degree in, in uh, data analytics, sort of a data science degree. Um, mm-hmm. and that, that one did put me in the position of student. Um, and yeah, it's interesting seeing, seeing my old, patterns as a student reemerge after 10, 15 years of being on the other side of the, of the teacher's desk. Um, you know, that I'm, I'm someone who I'm I'm very good at like taking a few pieces and figuring things out for myself and not good at seeking out the resources. Mm -hmm. I'm not good at like, okay, let me just go read the documentation for that API. So I know what it is. I'll go, no, I know one fact. Let me see if I can leverage that one fact. Um, which, which in some it, part why I majored in math and not something like computer science. And math, actually, the skill of leveraging that one fact is pretty good. Will get you pretty far. In computer science, it's very silly, right? You know, you're writing these nested for loops when it's like you realize there's a built-in function that will do that in one line. <laughs> um,
0: okay, I w- I would like to know something about when you wake up every day. What's one mm-hmm. aspect of your professional life that you're really looking forward to?
2: Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good question. It, they're different. Um, right. My professional life has gone through what feel to me like two very different phases. So right. The sort of teaching phase and the writing phase I, I taught full time, more or less for seven years, with one year of writing thrown in there. And then, um, since then I've been writing full time for the last five years with bits of teaching thrown in. Um, while I was teaching, I always believed the people. Seeing the people and in the moments going back to when I was a student, I think those moments when you get to just be with people in school between classes at lunch, whatever it is. Um, yeah. Especially the um, when I worked in the UK, I just had a lovely group of colleagues. Um, so I lived there for three years and was teaching at a school. And so just time with time with my colleagues would have been the, the thing I would look forward to then. Um, and, and the students too. I mean, I, I love the students when I, when I taught in California, actually, I saw very little of my colleagues. We were very, it was like you were in front of students 95% of the day, it felt like. Um, And so then it would have been those moments when I just got to see and connect with my students. Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly those, those classes, once you really get to know them um, there was a group that I taught to varying degrees, all four years that I was teaching at that school. You know, I taught them when they were from ninth grade through 12th grade and, and then you develop, those are close relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, So so those would have been the thing while I was teaching that that got me through that motivated me um, with writing yeah i mean i've I've always loved writing too, so for me it's it's probably those moments when I get to go back and look at a piece of text that's forty to eighty percent of the way there and start to polish and and work on it where I don't have to start from scratch. I know that there's something here that's exciting um mm-hmm. and that's working and figuring out how to clear away the clutter and bring the bring the best parts of it to life. Um I'd say for me now that's that's what I find most exciting. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So
0: one student told me that a goal of hers this summer had been to fold a thousand origami paper cranes and she'd already done it. And as a Mm -hmm. consequence of this, now she could say that she could fold a crane in 70 seconds as a you know if she wanted to do it speedily, but that the best cranes were folded in 90 to 95 seconds. And another student wrote that he grew up in Southwest China because his parents, he's the son of Baptist missionaries. And then he was back in Richmond and then he was in Seoul, Korea. And another student wrote that, sorry for the delay, but he lives in Colombo, Sri Lanka and his family have been supplying food and drink to the protesters. And I Mm -hmm. thought to myself, oh my goodness, like sign me up for another decade. These students are so interesting. Yeah. Anyway.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's totally true. It, it, it's um, I think if you're like friends of mine who you know chat with me every couple months or every year, I think for the last five years while I've been a full time writer, have sort of gotten in every conversation we've had. Like, but I'm not going to be a full time writer for long. I'm getting back into the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> and I've done. probably there was a pandemic in there, and there, there there have been obstacles and 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 my own my own failures to. I don't know, to prioritize that. Um, but I do, I'm lined up to teach a class in the fall and I would like to just go back to doing that. And, and if writing needs to dial back down to become more of a part-time thing, that um, I'm willing to do that for exactly the reasons you're saying. Like students are, are just fascinating people. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's some part of me that likes having, like I think sort of one of the best ways to experience the world is just to be dealt a random hand of human beings shuffled from the deck of all of us us <laughs> and then just get to know them and learn about them because like, everybody's interesting everybody's got got facets to them and, and depths to them um and teaching you sort of get to do that you get i mean n- both the schools i've taught at had their own peculiarities and their own you know their 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 own odd features um but the students have always just been great you like mm-hmm. you just get dealt a random human being and and they're going to be an interesting person to know
3: <laughs> um i would like to know so you are writer, your student, your teacher, your husband, your father. What do you do to take care of yourself in the day? What do you do when <laughs> just to, you know, to have your bend time?
2: Yeah, that's, just a, good, that's a good question. Actually, I, I, I was looking over the uh, the questions you'd sent in advance. Um, and I asked my wife, that. I said, like, what, what do I do? Do you know? Um, and I think one, the answer she gave was you protect your sleep um uh, which is true oh, I'm, like, I'm very i'm very defensive answer. i'm very defensive of my sleep um mm-hmm. yeah we are talking to a friend we we're both watching the same tv show and he was saying oh so you you saw the season finale last night like no no we watched the second to last episode and he's like but th- it's a cliffhanger you didn't then don't you watch the season finale i was like No, it was nine 30. I had to go to bed. (laughs) Like there's no, I'm not going to like lose 45 minutes of sleep because of a TV show. Like no sleep is sleep is sacrosanct. Um, yeah. When, when our daughter was really young, you know, first few weeks and months, um, and just go to bed at eight, you know, and then it was my turn. My shift would start at like four, but that was fine. That was eight hours or is that too many hours? No. Yeah. That's eight hours of sleep. Yeah. So that was fine. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was it, you know, like go to bed after dinner and then, and then wake up at 4am when, when the baby needs me to wake up. Uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, so I think that, that that's as much as anything, what I've done. Um, and I definitely feel, I feel like a different person if I don't get enough sleep and not a better person. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. That's such a great answer. You protect your sleep.
2: Yeah. I just, yeah. In college actually too, I did this. I, I there was a friend, I think it was, it was, you know, struggling first semester in the way that lots of college freshmen do. And I sat down with a friend and he was like, Oh, the trick is go to bed by midnight. Always go to bed by midnight and then you're fine. I was like, clever. Okay. I'll try that. And then that became my thing. You know, my friends remember me, it's like, I was like the weird guy who went to bed at midnight, you know, weekends, maybe I'd stay up till one or two, but, but weeknights in bed by midnight always. Um, mm-hmm. and I remember I mentioned that to him senior year, we were getting lunch or something and he was like, what? Was like, you know, in bed by midnight, that doesn't ring a bell. Maybe I did that for a week or two, but that's absolutely not the way I've lived my life. So was, <laughs> yeah. I thought this was like his, his life wisdom. No, that I, I just <laughs> some whim he'd tried out for a little bit and then it became very <laughs> central to what I did
0: okay so we've got some quick fire questions for you Ben the first one is when you wake up in the morning what do you look forward to in your professional day
1: <sighs> my professional day
2: Hmm. I guess it's not a very rapid fire question if I pause for <laughs> ages before <laughs> answering <laughs> um what do I look forward to in my professional day uh yeah it, it's the Playing with language, I guess today—that's um, that's what it is right now with the writing. Um, although, to be honest, although writing has been wonderful and and like a really exciting phase in my career, and not something I necessarily expected to get to do to write these books for a living, um, there was more to look forward to when I was a teacher every day. The, the, those days are just fuller and richer. Um, so, so there, yeah, the, the the moments with students, the moments of seeing them make connections and and lessons going well or, or lessons taking weird turns. Those would be the moments I would look forward to most during my career.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: What's your go-to song to energize you?
2: Oh, there's a lot of, a lot of good songs out there. Um, for me and my daughter, one of our go-to songs is uh, eight days a week by the Beatles. She's into that. Mm -hmm. I used to do a little dance with her when she was smaller, although now she weighs like 30 plus pounds. It's getting a little harder to like (laughs) swing her around and toss her in the air. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm always searching for new music. So I I tend to, I tend to cycle quickly through stuff. I've got like a playlist of, you know, the songs that, that will always get me pumped up. Um, But, but, but it'll, it'll change a little bit from, uh, from week to week.
0: Where's a place that you really enjoy?
2: (sighs) Place I really enjoy. Yeah. There's a lot of, I've always enjoyed traveling. We lived in, in uh, Birmingham, England for three years and that, was such a lovely chapter of our lives, just getting to live abroad and, and be the funny special Americans who were the only Americans in town. It felt like, you know, lots of Americans in London, lots of Americans in Oxford and Cambridge, not that many Americans in Birmingham. Uh, and so, yeah, for me, Birmingham, it, which is, you tell that to any Brit and they're gonna be like, Birmingham? Really? <laughs> Birmingham is your special place? But no, I'll, I'll say it. Yeah, I think Birmingham would be a, a special place for me.
1: Uh-huh.
3: Uh, what's on your desk that would surprise us?
2: Oh, interesting. I, yeah, my desk. I'm in the basement right now, so I have to go look upstairs at my desk. Um, yeah, it, it, you definitely would have an eclectic set of books. I think what's sitting right there right now. I'm like halfway through Frederick Douglass's autobiography. Mm. Um, there's a collection of Helen Macdonald essays, like beautiful naturalist essays. She wrote H's for Hawk. Was her or Colin Card? Um, I don't know if those are that surprising, but uh, yeah, eclectic reading materials, I suppose. Lots of sticky notes. Um, <laughs> Sharpies and colored pencils. Cause that's still how I do my drawing. I don't, I don't do it like on a tablet or anything. I just get a computer paper and, and scribble with Sharpies. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure how surprising any of those are, but that's the, that, that is most of the contents of my desk right now.
0: Mm-hmm. And last one in a single sentence, what would you say to a person considering pursuing mathematics?
2: I would say, uh, Good luck. And send me an email if you have any questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, 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 yeah. It's a uh, right, My email is drawings at Gmail. Um, yeah. It, I, uh, there's so many different ways to pursue mathematics, right? That I would want, I would like need about five more paragraphs from the person before I would know what advice to give. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, one, one common profile is the student who's thrived all the way through school and it's like, well, I've succeeded at every level. I was really good at middle school. So I got to take hard classes in high school. So I got to go to a selective college and now I get to go to grad school and that's just the path. And for that person, I would say, maybe, but like think hard about what it is you enjoy. And maybe that's not the path. Um, grad school isn't just the next thing. It's That's a specific professional path. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe like if, if what you enjoy is learning, lots of new things, grad school could be the right thing. But again, it's, it's, a matter of depth versus breadth But grad school really rewards, you know, a, a career as an academic um, there are academics with incredible broad knowledge base, but you, you absolutely need to go deep. Um, and so is that what you want to do? Um, I think often, you know, secondary school education can be a good alternate path to consider um, for people with good technical abilities. I think, you know, especially people who like know math, but not necessarily much programming. It's not a crazy idea to learn a little bit of programming and learn, what else is out there in the world and in industry. Um, so I think, yeah, so if, if pursuing math means grad school, I would say make sure you take inventory of the other paths before committing to one. Grad school is not actually the default path. It's one path of many. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that's really good insight.
3: Well, I really enjoyed our time together, Ben. Thank you so much for joining
2: us today. Yeah, no, thank you both so much. Yeah, it's, really, it's really fun to talk to you both.
0: I'm looking forward to your next book and to you updating us on your next professional move.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for it too.
0: Okay. Thanks Ben. All right. Thanks. Bye.
3: Well, that was a lot of fun. I, I was smiling and laughing the whole time we were talking to him. He's a really nice guy. What did you think, Della?
0: Well, First of all, I loved his positive spirit. Mm -hmm. He's so enthusiastic and Mm -hmm. it just drew me right into everything he was doing. And also his gratitude for experiences he's had in life. I really appreciated his generous expressions of gratitude. I also really appreciated how aware, aware he was of his skills and strengths, even as a young college student and how he used that to pursue a professional path that suited him rather than one. People around him may have been pursuing. I loved his commitment to sleep. <laughs> and I also really loved how when we ask him about what he looks forward to his professional in his professional day, he talked about that. As much as he loves writing and he's clearly good at it, he looks forward to being handed a group of students and teaching them mathematics.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really liked that he um, talked about finding what excites you in life and making a career out of that. And he certainly has done that. A good inspiration for us. Yeah, that was great. Thank you.
0: So thanks for joining us. And until next time, we'll be counting you in. Bye-bye. Count Me In with Dell Indiana is produced by the talented Aiden Martin, music created by Casey Fenster, and podcast image by Victoria Robinson.